Welcome to the Han Jam Rancho, the audacious podcast by Hannah Rankin. I am your host, Hannah Rankin, and I interview guests who have made bold moves to create positive change, be that personally or societally. My guests are collectively from a plethora of diverse backgrounds, and together we discuss a vast array of topics. If it is empowering and audacious, you will find it here on the Hanjam Ran Show. Empowering and audacious is exactly what this next guest is all about. Alex Traculia is a sex therapist and mental health counsellor, and I suppose with those titles under her belt, I shouldn't have expected anything other than gloriously sensitive insight into the human experience, but even so, I was truly blown away. Go find Alex and give her a follow at underscore the pleasure center on Instagram and read more about her services at thepleasurecenter.org. But first, please welcome to the show, Alex Traculia. Thank you for inviting me and for hosting such um, an audacious project that you have going on here it's very exciting it is exciting and and do you know what it's it's allowed me to meet and converse with so many audacious spirits and I'm so excited to discuss all things Alex and just to give a little introduction so you describe your your one of your facets as being a mental health counsellor and a sex therapist. And I was just wondering to start us off, if you could explain exactly what that means. Yeah, absolutely. So um, a mental health counsellor, I guess these are two different forms of training, essentially. So I have training as a mental health counsellor and then also training as um, within the world of sexology and specifically as a sex therapist because people can kind of study different areas of sexology and sex therapy is one of the areas that falls under that term. Um, So what that means is with my background in mental health um, and talking therapy, um, I'm kind of combining topics of sexual health, sexuality, sexual functioning um, within the realm of talking therapy. Wow. Okay. So I didn't realize they were their own entities. So what did you originally study? So I originally did an undergraduate degree in psychology, um, which, you know, with the intention of becoming a psychologist and then later sort of found that pathway to be quite dry um, <laughs> and went into more of like a mental health counselling pathway because I was more interested in practical strategies and skills opposed to psychology, which that pathway trains you in how to assess um, for mental health diagnosis and disorders. So I didn't really have a personal interest in doing that in my professional um job I wanted to kind of look more at intervention a bit more of a solution focused uh, I guess approach and that's where I ended up so that's why I'm not a psychologist I'm a counsellor that's the kind of defining aspect there and then uh, yeah so I did a master's in counselling but within that I did research on female sexual dysfunction so then I've kind of 
yeah, it's a bit of a weird, it's definitely not a linear pathway for a career, that's for sure. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm sure, you know, as you learn more and experience more sort of new endeavours and pursuits and desires to continue your career will reveal themselves. So I'm sure you're not the only person that's had a non-linear <laughs> route to what they do. I really resonate with your distinction between a psychologist and a counsellor. I encountered a psychologist when I was a teenager mm. and I did find it so, so weird that they just sat there and probed at the problem but we offered no solution and at the end of it all I had was a huge bill and a label and that was the end that was the end of the interaction and it just it was really uncomfortable to be honest yeah absolutely and look for what it's worth I think it's really hard to find a mental health professional that you click with um because some people want that though right like some people actually want someone to to listen to the problem and then go okay well I can validate that experience for you by providing you with a label your problem is called uh depression your problem is called borderline personality disorder like your your problem is called generalized anxiety disorder and for a lot of people that can be therapeutic but for others it's kind of like okay cool so what do I do with this information and it can kind of leave them at a bit of a Mm. loss as well so I think it's fair to say that your first audacious point is choosing to study and work in the world of sexology but what does the world of sexology mean like I understand that being an umbrella term but what is what does that um, encompass sure that's a great question so Sexology, the word itself, is the study of human sexual life or relationships or sexuality. Um, with Obviously, within that, it is very broad. Like you could decide to focus on things like sexual desire, intimacy issues, mismatched libido, um, sexual communication within relationships. You could also, of course, within sexuality, you also have um, things like exploring your sexual orientation, uh, gender identity, uh, you know, any kind of compulsive sexual behavior, understanding the impact of sexual trauma on relationships. Um, it's quite a vast field. However, I would argue all of these things are super important to our sense of well-being and mental health um, and often mm. kind of don't get acknowledged in day-to-day talking therapies. Mm, I guess that comes from a societal view that it's all quite taboo. And in the past, we were silenced in a way around these topics. And I think I dare to say, especially as women, um, Mm. in your learning around uh, the sexology field, I mean, I'm sure there's plenty of work to, to be done still today, but has it sort of picked up in popularity in terms of addressing these issues? That's a really good question. Um, the field of sexology was pioneered by men in positions of medical authority until about the 1960s when Masters and Johnson started studying um, human sexual behaviour and they generated really famous results from their research, uh, some of which was looking at uh 
female orgasm and how it transpired and they created this um a four-stage model of sexual desire and it, it was very famous research and then in the 70s another female researcher she came along and kind of adapted uh the model of desire to include a five-stage model and then from that point onward you started to see along with like the sexual liberation the feminism movement in the 60s and 70s more women stepping into positions of um you know becoming researchers becoming scientists becoming people that started to produce really good research in the field of sexology so it was um not until, I mean, that's still very recently when you think about it, right? Like that's only, um, you know, 50, 60 years ago that we started having women in this field. And you also would, you can see how the impact of more female scientists in sexology has also generated more uh, diverse research that looks at female um, relevance mm-hmm. issues because until then it's always it's been quite a male centric area. So there's a lot of research on male se- uh, sexual dysfunction, like erectile dysfunction, but not as much on female sexual dysfunction. However, that field is obviously expanding quite quickly now that um, there have been changes in the culture of that research field. Mm, Yeah, it's really interesting to think about the societal trends and how they impact the research that is pursued. Do you think that the Me Too movement has had an effect? Has it trickled down into the sexology research field as of yet? That's a really good question. I I can't really speak for whether it has, because I think the Me Too movement has happened so recently that we're probably not going to see the impact of it for another Mm. five, 10 years. That's usually how that kind of works is that we look back, um, you know, and we go, oh, wow, look at how, when we, we look back retrospectively and say, look at how the Me Too movement actually influenced more, uh, female identifying, uh, victims of sexual violence stepping forward, speaking about their um, experiences, accessing therapeutic resources, and also um, reporting more. Do you know what I mean? Like we won't be able to see the increase in the amounts of reports to police of historical sexual violence for another five to ten years. <clears throat> and I think also that also shows you um, – in, in the area of forensic sexology, it's very interesting because the social uh, the social issues around sexuality that we are discussing in the here and now, our law reform is a good 30 years behind that. Um, so it's a very interesting kind of relationship between sexual, um, what should we call it? Like not like the sexual revolution, but it's like the any kind of sexual movement um, the law does take a fair amount of time to catch up to that. Yeah, that does make sense that there's a, there's a lag and that it would take time to, to even monitor or assess um, the, the effects that sort of ripple down after. Mm. Um, So, okay, let's take it back. I'm digging in deep in terms of (laughs) your expansive knowledge on the topic for 
selfish reasons, totally. So we've cited your pursuit to study sexology as a pretty audacious move, which it definitely is. But what was it that initially enticed you to learn more about this subject? Sure. Okay. So, um, to be honest, I had no idea what sex therapy was when I was doing my undergraduate degree in psychology. So when I was in my undergrad, I was kind of going through the motions, learning all the theory, which at the time I just did not appreciate. Like I was 22 or something. I just was like, I want to get out there. I want to work with people, but I'm stuck kind of learning all the theory. And I had this like quarter life crisis where I was like, am I actually meant to do this. Maybe I'm wasting a lot of time and a lot of money in a career that is just not meant for me. And so I went online to complete a careers quiz in the hope of <laughs> having some kind of answer. Um, and this generated the outcome that I should work in mental health and with people. So I was like, okay, like that's somewhat comforting. I'm, I'm in the right area. Um, but with, along with that sort of outcome of the careers quiz was a list of various professions that one could pursue within that field and sex therapy was one of them and I was I was like oh that's so interesting um you know I want to learn more about that so I clicked on uh the tab and I kind of learnt uh about what that term sexology represents um so things we've kind of touched on working with people around issues of sexuality, sexual well-being, sexual functioning, and relationships. And I kind of reflected on my own relationships and friendships and the conversations that we often have in private with the ones that we're closest with. Um, And I realized that I'm not one to shy away from these kind of tough conversations. So I thought, you know what, I may as well turn these conversations or my ability to facilitate these conversations about tough topics around sex I may as well get paid to do this (laughs) because I would love that like it just ended up being something that I I kind of pursued from that moment um because ultimately for me I think that we are having these conversations people are having them but they're having them with their friends or they're having them with people that they they feel comfortable having them with they're learning the hard way you know what I mean? Like I think we go through a lot of trial and error. And so uh, to ha- to be able to access a resource, someone like a sex therapist that you can go to who can provide you with that support but also provide you with informed support so it's different to like you, just your friends going, you know, oh, yeah, like that I got thrush too. What's thrush about? Like how, why is it that we're getting thrush? Like, you know, <laughs> just those little conversations. Yeah, that that makes so much sense. And well, I'm like reflecting while you're while you're saying that on on my own, uh, I guess, audacity around around the topic of sex. And I think behind closed doors, I do feel very confident to empower mm. my friends, empower myself. I've been raised by a woman that has always explained to me from the get go that women are entitled to enjoy sex as well. It's not just for the man, and so. Um, I mean, I'm talking in very simplistic gender terms here, but yeah, I've always been, I've always been encouraged and empowered in sort of my own mm. sexuality. And I think that shows itself behind closed doors, but there is a real duality sort of internally of 
the I guess it's the voice of society within my head that will try and keep it quiet from I guess more public conversations and I wonder if you ever encounter that sort of that sort of voice that or maybe in the past encounter a voice that's trying to keep you a bit more quiet around the topic and do you ever feel like you have to take a deep breath and sort of step into your most audacious self or your sort of bolder side of your soul to to approach these topics or have you got to a point where Mm. it's just like you know talking about sex is like talking about what you're gonna have for lunch and you can just get into it no matter what mood you're in (laughs) yeah I think it's um to, to answer the first part of that question which was about having a larger societal pressure to remain quiet. Um, I was, I was in a a talk the other day and someone, the, the person speaking said, if you want to control a population, subjugate the population's women. And I, I feel like that's what you're kind of touching on is this idea that our society absolutely wants to silence us to manage us in in a way that's easy in a way that goes we don't have to worry about them stepping into their power we don't have to worry about a very long-term patriarchal system being threatened and to answer the second part of that question yes there are times where I feel myself going is this too much am I too much right now? And, Mm. and to be honest, when that thought comes in, that's not my voice. That is the voice of ex-boyfriends who've said, you're too much. Mm. Your opinions are too loud, are too strong, are too feminist, are too frequent. Um, you, you know, you're taking up so much space. This idea that, Within a society, women need to be silenced and need to be small. And you're right. This is absolutely audacious fucking content. I am stepping into an area of work that threatens a lot of people's understanding of what a woman should be doing. I think it's... um, I think it is my responsibility with the privilege that I have been given by my, you know, my parents and my grandparents who all migrated to Australia to give me opportunity to raise me in a world where I could access higher education. I could access a career of my choice. I didn't just have to work to survive. I could pursue education in a way that was not only in order to survive, but to actually thrive. And so it is my responsibility to utilize that privilege Mm -hmm. and be audacious because why the fuck not? If I don't step into that power, then why did they work so hard? Why did they make all those sacrifices? I'm not actually utilizing all of their hard work and the opportunity that they provided me with in order to open doors to have difficult conversations that perhaps, like you said earlier, we often have these conversations in private. And I want to be able to open the door for people to realize that you don't have to be 
it doesn't have to be in private. It doesn't, you don't have to keep quiet. You don't have to live in that shame or that fear of, oh my God, I'm the only person going through this. Because ultimately that thought is what keeps us small. It's what keeps us quiet. It's kind it's holding us back. And so, yes, I do hear that kind of broader message of like, is this too much right now? But I've always been such a dickhead by nature. And I just, I just have to push back. (laughs) (laughs) So I just, I can't not. I really connect with you on that. (laughs) My mom definitely raised an audaciously spirited (laughs) young woman in that. I, I will, I will put my hand up and say I'm a dickhead in the, in the sense that you're referring to and that so many aspects of my, of my spirit. And, you know, that's actually my favorite part of myself and it doesn't always come easy. There are definite, you know, as you said, there are voices and I've been told I'm too much by surprising people, people that I look up to even say you know oh god you've done so much work on yourself like not not many people have done that much work it might be too much for people or you know I agree with what you're saying but do you have to say it all the time like can't we just have a nice dinner yeah (laughs) that that kind of thing I get that one a lot Um. (laughs) yeah you know I think it's really hard when when you 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 have in yourself that drive to be audacious, you have that energy that goes, I'm actually not scared because I've been raised by people who have taught me not to be scared or they've given me the opportunity to feel confident. However, even in my own experience, my parents themselves went, whoa, 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 were you sure about this? It took my dad three years to be able to actually mm. say, my Alex, my you know daughter Alex is studying sex therapy. He couldn't do it. He kept flipping between she's a psychologist, she's a counselor, she's she works in HR. I was like, Dad, I don't work in fucking HR. <laughs> <laughs> like it was just um, really hard for people to and and you know that's their. And I have to respect that these are people that they have sacrificed a lot. They have gone through emotional trauma to raise me in a world of opportunity. And that's a lot for them to actually switch off that survival mode and recognize that I'm in a thriving mode and that that is me thriving. So it's taken them um, some time to actually recognize, oh, this is what thriving looks like. And of course, um, it takes a lot of resilience. Like you really, in that moment, sometimes even your biggest supports question what you're doing and you have to have yourself. You have to back yourself and be like, okay, fuck, everyone is actually looking at me being like, you're a little bit crazy. Sure. You want to make a career out of talking about sad vaginas. And I'm like, yes, I have to just go all in and say yes. (laughs) And that's the best I can do in that moment. And here, here, we're glad that there's people like you paving the way to make those conversations easier. I think uh, what I was going to say before is that um, my sort of li- tiny little version <laughs> of that, my uh, sort of pursuit of helping open up these these conversations in a more open arena is 
just with periods. So I no longer will whisper that I'm on my period or whisper, can I borrow a tampon or hide it out my sleeve when I go to the bathroom? Now I'm just like, I mean, I even work in a predominantly female um, office. Like, I, oh, there's probably three, four guys out of 28 of us. Mm. And now I'm not gonna, I'm no longer saying like, trying to hide the fact that I'm menstruating, which is, you know, it's again, that's, it's a privilege that my body is working in such a way that I get to bleed every month. Um, And to feel shame around something that's so natural, I think is one of those um, sort of gagging orders that we have from society. And and the, the most impressive part of the whole system that keeps us quiet is that we it becomes so embedded that we then silence ourselves and I feel like what you're doing is you're opening up the space to allow these conversations to not be so filled with shame and yeah so it's incredibly good work and like needed work um and the way that you look at your opportunity coming from the privilege awarded to you from your parents and grandparents' sacrifice. I'm sure there's a huge disparity between their understanding and 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 not just understanding, but um, comfort in in the work that you're doing. But what a, an accomplishment for them to have created an opportunity in a life where you can go forth and conquer in whatever fields you feel is your calling. Mm, yes, absolutely. Um, you're right. There is a huge discrepancy between our knowledge base, not only around like sexual uh, reproductive health, but relationships. For example, my higher education in psychology and therapy has allowed me to access resources and training that improves my communication skills, which means that I start to set boundaries with my family and I start to communicate things and they go, wait, what the fuck is this? And I'm like, yeah, this is actually a thing that people do. (laughs) It's, um, (laughs) it's, it's quite a, it's been quite a beautiful journey to actually, you know, as I got into therapy, like my grandparents think therapy is for crazy people. And so my parents never accessed a resource like that because of the stigma. However, um, even more recently, as I've gone through my training, my parents, I've encouraged them and they've actually started to access therapy and they're loving it. And I think everybody should be in therapy and you don't need to have like a really obvious issue or challenge to be seeking mental health support. We, It's like brushing your teeth, you know, it's one of those things that you just do um, every day for the general upkeep of your dental hygiene and you know that, okay, if I brush my teeth twice a day, it means that when, you know, if I get something goes wrong, then I'm generally, the health of my teeth is pretty good. So I won't have to like, you know, have a huge surgery. And it's kind of the same thing with mental health. If you have regular access to mental health support, then whenever some kind of stressful event occurs, you have a resource there to lean on. You have a form of support and often you have a set of skills and strategies that you can access. So you go, okay, now I don't feel like I'm flailing, you know?
next audacious point I'd love to talk on is about how you intertwine both of your modalities. So when you're offering sex therapy, how does your background in mental health counselling inform your sex therapy? Sure. So um, that's a really good question. So the mental health counselling is what's given me training to work with uh, a range of different mental health challenges. So I've worked with people with anxiety. I've worked with people with depression, eating disorders, uh, drug and alcohol uh, use, what else? Borderline personality. Um, you know, there's some working with people who are managing symptoms of PTSD. There's a, a really broad kind of approach or sorry, broad experience with different presentations, but the mental health counseling is also representative of the different ways I've been trained. So I can in sex therapy where th- that is the space where Yes, I have training around sexuality and sexual health, but within those conversations, I will apply different therapeutic approaches that I've learned in my mental health counseling education. So that's where I go, okay, you know, there's an underlying sexual belief that, for example, sexual pleasure should focus on a male partner, say in a heterosexual dynamic. This is just a very like um, kind of common example that's used but often you might hear that like women are quite passive in sexual situations not asserting their sexual needs and suddenly pleasure becomes all about the male and male ejaculation and orgasm and so you might there might be an underlying sexual belief there that we can identify in sex therapy and what we do is then apply different therapeutic approaches on how to manage that belief how to actually recognize it, notice when it's starting to pop up throughout uh, sexual interactions and have the skills and strategies there to not let it absolutely sabotage your attempts at being sexually assertive. For sure. And uh, I mean, in the limited understanding I have that there is no sexual health without mental health or maybe not sexual health, but um, sexual empowerment without mental health, because just in my experience on this earth as as a um hetero cis woman you know the two are just so linked that there's no way of of separating them and you have to well I have to be in a mentally uh strong and positive space to enjoy my sexuality as as much as I as I have the potential to so I'm sure you know that anyone that gets to have you as their sex therapist will benefit all the more because you have that that other understanding around mental health um because yeah I was in my limited understanding I think they're just so inextricably linked um and another Mm. aspect that you define in your uh description of of the work that you do is coming from it informed by an intersectional feminist approach what does that perspective offer as a therapist in comparison to perhaps one that doesn't acknowledge that cross-section? Sure. So I think um, the importance of being intersectional in your feminism is that if you're not intersectional, it's white supremacy. And, you know, I think being Serbian-Australian, I am not white myself. I have been raised biculturally 
And I, but I, I guess I, um, I am still white passing. So I'm still treated with some privileges of, um, being white because I'm not dark, as dark as maybe, um, someone from a different cultural background. Um, and so I guess the importance of being intersectional in my feminism and in my day-to-day practice is recognizing the intersections there. For one person, it might be being raised biculturally. So understanding that there are certain cultural beliefs that impact their sexuality. Um, for example, religion is a big one. If you grew up um, in a religious household, if you grew up in a low socioeconomic household, if you grew up um, with some kind of disability, if you grew up uh, not being able to explore your gender identity, if you grew up being told um, misogynistic beliefs, um, gender roles, if you grew up without, uh, you know, emotional support from certain family members. There are so many things that create these intersections that mean that every single person I work with has absolutely unique needs and their sexological worldview, which is just the different experiences, interactions that have informed their values, attitudes, beliefs, and perceptions of the world. There are so many intersections within that, that I need to be intersectional in my feminism. I need to understand that it's not treating every single person equally. It's treating them with equity, which is going, your needs are different to the next person's needs, which are different to the next person's needs. And so my practice is informed by that underlying ethical approach, which is it's not just about equality, it's about equity as well. If only we could apply that to all arenas, that would be such a more beautiful space for us to mm. us to walk through. So in in keeping with that outlook, what do you think is, I mean, this is a huge question, but what is missing from general societal understanding on these topics like if you could wave your magic wand as Alex the sex therapist what sort of stigma would you undo that you think is the most widespread and the most damaging oh oh (laughs) that is a big question um (laughs) and you know that's so funny because sometimes I have to say to people in therapy I'm not a magician I don't have a magic wand that I can just wave and for your issues to go away through therapy like it takes work so I've spent so long not Mm. allowing myself to access the idea of a magic wand (laughs) (laughs) but if I did have a magic wand I think within my experience, I would want to, um, oh, that's such a big question. But the first thing that came to my mind was actually waving a magic wand that would allow, um, any person to be free of societal restrictions around body image and, self-expression in an embodied way. So I guess this touches on even the previous point that you made around um, the idea that therapy is, and sex therapy in particular, is different to just 
psychology where you might be doing a lot of what I call like the neck up work. Yeah. Where you're doing a lot of thinking, evaluating, um, analyzing and starting to actually understand what your experience in your body is like, which is, you know, what we then call embodiment. Yeah. So understanding that mind body connection and a lot of our societal values discourage that. And so my magic wand would act to eliminate that kind of stigma of we can't be happy in our bodies Um, because I do think that when we can enjoy our experience through our bodies, it can provide us with such bliss, such peace, such happiness. And that's what I would use my magic wand for. If only I wish you had that magic wand. Yeah, there's such power (laughs) to be had. (laughs) Yeah, there's such power to be had when we well uh, I don't know my experience has been twofold one it's to embrace enjoy celebrate um appreciate my body and that's come from an experience with disordered eating throughout my teenage years that's something I struggled with for five years before I was 18 and then in my 20s I was so I was ill in a in a very uh physical way where I couldn't walk for months at a time and I was in and out of a wheelchair so having that relationship with a body that I felt was not serving me was a really interesting one and you know little moments like I remember Mm. watching Sex in the City and I, I kind of phased out of what they were talking about and I was watching Carrie's legs I just was staring at her legs as they were walking I was like oh I just want legs that would walk um so yeah, it's been a really ugh, interesting experience in terms of my relationship with my body. And so yes, there's a there's a huge sense of empowerment by loving it. And I'm I have just uh you know, undescribable gratitude to it that it that it does all the things that it does every day. But then on the flip side, I feel very free because I don't think about my body too much. I try not to uh overanalyze I try not to dissect it I try not to compare Mm. it to other bodies and so for me that entails not spending not allowing too much headspace to worry to you know just uh dissect my body that I've been given I'm just glad I've got one and I try and keep it as simple as that um but in in creating that space and in creating that sense of freedom around my physical form to me, it allows that then for me to focus on other other areas of life, other issues even um, with that sort of foundation. But if I didn't have that connection with my physical self, I don't think these other realms would be possible to explore. So, yeah, I think it's a, a huge, um, like, I think it's, I think we're aware of the importance but it can be almost trivialized to be all about aesthetics. And actually it's a real sense of identity to come within your body and, and be connected to the one that you have. Um, and in, you know, as we touched on that societal mm. gagging that we experience, um, I think that's probably one, yeah, as you said, one of the biggest um, ways that we're silenced and, and, 
I see this on Instagram, but I couldn't agree more, you know, to love yourself is a form of activism and to appreciate our physical form is rebellious. We're not encouraged to do that by marketing and um, the, the even, you know, potentially at home because it is a generational uh, topic of growth. I don't think that the generations a few back from ours have been told positive messages around themselves. So it's hard for that to filter down. I think it's something we're really having to um, formulate for ourselves. And yeah, I'm not asking a question on it. I'm just agreeing massively with. uh, Yeah. 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 I think it's, um, you know, it just made me, as you were talking, I was also reflecting on this idea that when I think a lot of, um, vulva owners or female identifying people um and maybe even not only them I think even a lot of trans people who your body you just at times don't trust it it doesn't feel right you're told it's not right you learn to despise and resent it and I think when working in this field there is a huge shift um, to go from being in a headspace within, uh, tr- say, you know, for a lot of trans people, when you're transitioning and your body doesn't feel like your own, or if you're in <clears throat> an eating disorder, that is a really quite scary space. And to have this, what I like to call flesh vessel, that just, <laughs> it's, it's malleable when you emotionally and mentally can't connect and you you can't quite align with your experience moving through the world, the one thing you can control is your body. And so the body becomes this, not a place of peace and bliss and pleasure. It becomes a place of how can I control? How can I manipulate my physical body to try to feel better emotionally and psychologically. And I think as you were talking, I was reflecting on it is a massive shift to go through, um, you know, transitioning or an eating disorder. um, And often those things come hand in hand as well. But especially, you know, it doesn't even have to be um, an eating disorder. It doesn't have to be diagnosed it can just be being, you know, a person in a society that tells you your body is wrong. Fat phobia, for example, is a huge way of mm-hmm. subjugating a population of people. Um, so being anyone in this society where your body is ridiculed, it's criticized, it's never enough, the perfectionism is chronic, and suddenly you're expected to then become embodied and experience pleasure and be sexually liberated in a body you've spent years and years resenting and punishing and trying to change. How do you make that shift? Because that is a very intense expectation to have of ourselves to go from, you know, I hate my cellulite, um, my tummy's too, got too many rolls to suddenly, oh yeah, um, grab my my hot butt, you know, or yeah, I want (laughs) you to like hold me around the waist and, you know, like that's, there's such a contradiction there, isn't there? We are sold two very different messages and both relate to being embodied 
But one is we hate our body and the other is you have to experience all this bliss and pleasure in your body. It's it's quite uh, conflicting, isn't it? Absolutely. And you, um, I was kind of talking about the broader body um, in that in a more umbrella term, but the 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 point that you made around um, connection with our vulva or understanding the aesthetic of that, I think, goodness, that is like a huge area we need to work on. And there's, I actually haven't encountered any conversation around it to understand um, that there are. Um, a plethora of different forms of vulvas in the world and I just think that's it has the potential to be so damaging stifling um depressing even as you said to to limit us from being sexually liberated and how do you think we can create more of a safe understanding around the natural form of um of people that have vulvas to appreciate them in all their differences and glories? Mm, Look, I think that's a great question. So uh, I think one of the most important ways to recognize there is diversity is to have the audacity to educate yourself, to talk to people, to access you know, there's so much art out there that reflects the diversity of vulvas, that reflects the diversity of just bodies in general. Um, the most important thing that a person needs to do is to question everything. If you are given a message that says vulvas should look like, you know, your outer labia, which are the kind of uh, soft lips that your pubes grow on versus the inner inner labia, which are a slightly different textured, more wrinkly skin, that the outer labia should be bigger um, than the inner, then you need to question that because that's like saying all elbows should look like this. And it's just like, well, we know that there is such great diversity in human body that not every elbow is going to look the same. So if I'm being sold the idea that my vulva should look a certain way and it doesn't, question that. If you start to feel uncomfortable and go, oh my God, like my body is, my body obviously isn't living up to a standard question. Where is that message coming from? Where did that standard come from? Because obviously it's causing me distress and Within body image, we also, like the research I did in my thesis on women's sexual dysfunction generated a lot of interesting stuff around body image. And one of our biggest um, issues is uh, is embodying what's called the observer's perspective. So this is essentially where we experience um, not only our first person experience of our bodies. So you might be sitting here right now, like you know, if you're listening to this wonderful podcast, sitting in your car, you can feel the car seat underneath you, um, your seatbelt across your chest, hopefully. Um, and you go, okay, this is my, my first person experience of my body. And an observer's perspective is actually going, okay, well, how about the person sitting in the passenger seat next to me? When they look across at me driving and I'm wearing shorts because it's summer and it's warm, can they see my thigh like pressed up against the car seat? Or do my 
do my um I call them I think they call them from Kath and Kim like the fedubitas like the <laughs> the kind of like underarm um it's your tricep but it's like the skin around your tricep you know the fedubitas that people get um what else do they call them they call them like the um bingo wings like wings the bingo wings yeah. <laughs> that's what yeah. we call them <laughs> so like the observers <laughs> So good. So like the idea of the observer's perspective is essentially I'm not only sitting in my body as I experience it, but I am now considering how other people experience my body. What is their perception of my body? And on average, women will check their appearance from the observer's perspective every 20 minutes. Wow. Isn't that just so depressing? That's a real... It, yeah, it's a real, um, feels like a waste of energy, dare I say, and that we could be channeling our, <laughs> yeah. um, our concentration on something so much more powerful than worrying about that. Yeah. I don't know if that's really belittling to say, but it does feel like a waste of the magnitude of Look, what a woman has to offer or a person has to offer. Sorry. Yeah. You know, I think, um, it's when you when you hear it, it's shocking because you're like, seriously, like I have more important things to think about than how, you know, that random person is like if what they think of me in this bikini, you know. But then also when you look, you delve a little deeper, there's a really important purpose to the observer's perspective. And it it connects back to the patriarchal system we live in, which is that women are objectified and viewed through the male gaze. Uh, and this was because, you know, if you go back to Victorian era, it was like, okay, if you're beautiful, um, men will then want to marry you. And then marriage was like a contractual way of maintaining wealth within two families. Um, so to be objectified, it's a very old systemic way of reflecting your worth in society which you can now see the function of fat phobia here which is that as soon as someone is not uh thin tan whatever the this culture is whatever the, the values of the culture are suddenly you are disempowered and this is where those intersections come in um you're disempowered because maybe you're you're too dark or you're too pale or you're too um, hairy or you're too fat or whatever it is. And the, the observer's perspective then holds you accountable to the values of a culture within the patriarchal system. So you go, okay, well, I belong because I adhere to the beauty standards of this culture. However, it then also steps into a, a kind of darker realm of safety anxiety. So a lot of the observer's perspective is actually there to keep us safe from sexual predators. So uh, is, you know, do I look too seductive in this outfit? Um, you know, we, we've had a lot more of a uh, discourse around victim blaming in the past 10 years, and this is exactly where the observer's perspective steps in. You suddenly become really aware of your body as someone else might see it, and it's not always in a positive way. It's in a way of like, is someone looking at me like maybe they could hurt me right now? Maybe I'm sending a signal to them that I'm not, that I definitely do not intend to send, and maybe my safety is 
being threatened. So the observer's perspective is quite complex in its features. And so, yes, on one level, you think, fuck that. I would rather be thinking about way more interesting things. But then on another level, our brains are going, but what if we're not safe? What if this skirt is too short? Because I've read about how victims of sexual violence and rape were told, well, your skirt was too short and that's why you got raped. And so suddenly we go, well, then that's something I need to fucking worry about then, isn't it? Because the, you know, the feminine energy that is often um, a threat to the patriarchy, we are internalizing that. So we are then going, okay, well, I better keep myself small because what if this man looks at me and sees my feminine energy and that's a threat to him? And because it's a threat, he tries to hurt me. He tries to subjugate me. Instead of taking that risk, I'll subjugate myself. And so it is learnt. We learn it within a society and you're right, it is sad. Um, however, it's a lot of our realities and I think the important thing is to build an awareness around when and where that observer's perspective pops up because for a lot of people I work with, it's during sexual interactions with the people that they love, they trust. Um, they don't necessarily have to be in long-term relationships, doesn't matter, but it's still there. It's coming up and it's impacting their, their ability to access pleasure. Thank you for explaining the difference of experience that can fuel that um, sort of perspective that, that we can have on ourselves. I think I was, I was coming at it from a very narrow mind there when I was thinking about it. And even the way that I described it is suggesting that I don't do that. Of course I do. I do think about how I'm being perceived regularly. But then when you brought up the issue of safety, mm. God, that hits home so much. I didn't even consider that as part of it. I mean, it's just walking home in the dark, mm. you holding the keys between your fingers mm -hmm. while you walk in your pocket, just in case and considering every yeah, by, yeah. bypasser, like how, yeah, exactly what you said, how are you viewing me? And, and even, even when I was listening to you, I was thinking, you know, if I am feeling, you know, like I've made an effort in my appearance on a particular day and um it's that it's that duality of like I want certain people to see me as this attractive female because as you said we've been taught to value our importance based on how attractive we are perceived to be and yet that also that fear of I don't want the wrong person to to acknowledge my attractiveness yeah because it might threaten my safety so it's like how do we how do we filter <laughs> who is allowed and who is dangerous to um to acknowledge our physical appearance it's like that constant consideration all the time and so actually the more that you've unpacked the cause behind that statistic it makes it, it makes more sense to me as I consider it in fact I probably would say that like for a lot of people it's more than 20 minutes because well if you're out and about because of yeah the 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 threats and also the experiences that we have to encounter as a female identifying person in this world in the western world um, and probably in many parts of the world mm. um mm. yeah gosh really good food for thought Alex thank you yeah 
That's okay. It's um, look, it, it is a really interesting uh, concept, and I think it comes up a lot in my sessions with clients because they notice that, um, for example, they'll be having sex with a partner, and instead of being present and embodied in their pleasure, they're thinking, "Do I look kind of fat from this angle? Is my cellulite showing?" as when my legs are kind of in that position, um, you know, I might, you know, when you like lay down on your back and your boobs, like go into your armpits, like, (laughs) you know, just these little things that they, those, and like, it's such a common experience, but those thoughts that observers perspective can often completely derail you. And I think if people want to experience, um, orgasm, for example, orgasm is a place where you need to relinquish control. And coming back to the conversation earlier, uh, if you have experienced, and you know, I'm going to safely assume everybody has experienced some kind of body image concern, um, that kind of stuff can completely derail your ability to relinquish control, especially in a flesh vessel that you have spent so long resenting, so long trying to control or manipulate or change or improve. I'm using inverted commas there, improve um, to fit an idea of what you think you should look like. And suddenly when it's time to become embodied, you're in a body that you're actually not very familiar with and you're not actually really that um, – you don't feel completely safe in it in order to relinquish control. And so it can be really challenging for a lot of people um, when it comes to their sexual experiences. Absolutely. When I described the sort of coming to that I've had around my, what what do we call it, a flesh vessel, um, I thinking of that in (laughs) in light of... um, in light of my sexual experiences, like I think before I got to that place of acceptance around my body and also that uh, attitude of not trying to think about it all the time, I was, it was a very performative experience because I was having that observer perception of myself throughout sexual experiences. And it was like, do you know what? I I know a lot of, of blame is put on the porn industry. I've personally never really watched porn. It's just not been the the thing that gets me going um and yet I still had those sure. really limited views of what we should what I should look like as a female in the in the sexual conversation it was like you know it was very the barbie um shape you know as a as a body goes and Mm. and be perfect at all points throughout the encounter I mean it's completely ridiculous and unachievable Mm. and just like just yeah I'm gonna I'm gonna say it again a waste of energy but now that I don't prioritize thinking about my body that's not the, the primary thought going on in my mind it's so freeing in the bedroom as well as you know even just getting dressed it's not like a moment to start the day of hypercritical uh, conversation with myself. It's it's just literally putting clothes on the board and getting going. Um, but yeah, it's, I, it makes sense. Yeah, that absolutely. So tied into the sexual experience as well. I think you used a really good word there, which was performative. A lot of our sexuality is performative, and not just because of 
the impact of watching porn, but just even throughout this conversation, we've touched on so many different messages that society has given us um, that influences how we think we should exist in the world versus how we authentically exist in the world. And for what it's worth, sexuality is not your explicit sexual behavior that you are doing either by yourself or with partner or partners. It's the way that you express yourself, your attitudes, your beliefs, your values, um, your sexuality could look like the outfit that you put on your body that day. That could be an expression of your sexuality. It could look like um, what kind of makeup you want to put on, the kind of perfume you think smells good and when you put it on makes you feel good. Um, the way that you move through the world I think is part of your sexuality. And so I really like how you use the word performative because we are conditioned to have this performative expression of sexuality. And I think a lot of the time people come to sex therapy because they have recognized that no longer serves them and they want to step into a more authentic expression of their sexuality, remembering that that sexuality is not just the way that they fuck. It's like how you move through the world that feels right to you. Um, so thank you for saying that word. <laughs> no problem. And here is to the banishing of the practice of, of um, performative behaviours. Alex, I literally could keep <laughs> on picking your brain forever and ever because it's such a vast topic that you bring to the table and um just really really appreciate your perspective on on all of these myriad of topics that we've touched on today um but conscious of the time as ever and if you don't mind I would love to ask you the six quick fire questions that I ask every guest yeah absolutely go for it so the first one is, what is the first thing you do when you get up in the morning? The first thing I do when I get up in the morning is interact with my dog, Roger. Um, and I do this to ground myself into the day. I love his name. I love human names for dogs. That's so <laughs> cute. I know. <laughs> it's so funny. <laughs> I love that. Okay. What action feels most like prayer to you? The thing that helps me feel connected to myself is actually my breath. I just will often take a slow, deep breath in and out. And that can sometimes be accompanied by certain thoughts. So sometimes I'll write down like a poem based on whatever mindset or emotional state I'm in. And then that kind of becomes like a little... I guess, prayer to myself. Um, so my phone is full of those kinds of wacky thoughts. But yeah, that's what I do. Sometimes just breathe and that's enough. That's very powerful and sweet and simple in, at the same time. Okay, yeah. so what is the most audacious thing you've ever done? It would have to be to choose the career pathway that I've chosen that was like a commitment to a lifetime of audacity. <laughs> 100% and, you know, all power to you, girl. I'm, I'm excited for you, proud of that commitment. It's a Thank wicked you. one. 
<laughs> what commitment are you going to make to yourself for this coming week? Oh, I love that question. Oh my God, I'm going to write that down and say that to all my um, clients. Oh, um, <laughs> a commitment I am going to make to myself this week. At the moment, the commitments I've been making is around uh, exercise. So I am not big on exercise, but um, because I sit down for a lot of my job, I've actually developed um, a sore hip like an old lady. So part of my uh, rehabilitation is to exercise Um, And my commitment to myself is not to exercise to be skinny or to look a certain way. My commitment to myself is to exercise to feel strong. I love that. After this recording, I'm running off to a boot camp on the common where I will be doing burpees in the mud. And (laughs) when I signed up, I... Yes, girl, get it. (laughs) (laughs) Literally. And when I signed up, they asked me what what my goals were. And I said, I'm finally in a place where my goals are not uh, visual. I said, my goal is to feel strong and to enjoy the exhilaration of exercising outdoors and and the woman that owns the the Beautiful. company was that's like wonderful. Thank God, that's so refreshing. <laughs> it's true. It's no longer. I'm so competitive with myself. Like make it all so goal orientated, and now I just enjoy the process of mm. the exercise, and it's a lot more pleasurable that way. Yeah, I was I was in a class last night, um, and the instructor said all right, like keep pushing. You guys are doing really well. Just think about that glass of wine or that uh, that nice dinner out you can have tonight after this. And in my head, I was like, no, bitch. Like I'm thinking about how I'm going to sleep and my hip isn't going to hurt me <laughs> and I'm going to actually be okay. I'm thinking about the fact that when I go to yoga tomorrow morning, I'm going to get to be able to try that new move because I'm stronger. I'm thinking about how good I feel feel in my body because I've made this time. I've committed to myself in order to feel good. It's not like a transactional thing. I don't work out and then get to have the fucking mac and cheese. I do that shit anyway. That's not what this is about. (laughs) Fucking love it. Yes. Um, um, okay. So when was the last time you felt fearful and how did you handle it? I felt fearful on Thursday. Today's Saturday. So I felt fearful on Thursday because I started with a new psychologist myself and we are doing something called schema therapy, which is looking at different uh, like schemas that you have that influence uh, the way you react and respond to the world, the way you're perceiving the world. So I was fearful for, um, I guess, the, the fear of, delving into part of myself that I have I'm yet to explore however that fear was also accompanied with a sense of nervous excitement so I dealt with it again by just breathing that's just my (laughs) go-to in life Um, especially as someone who had previously struggled with anxiety I really did learn that a lot of my power comes from just stopping and taking a fucking breath that's it. I used to just tell myself, as long as you're still breathing, then you're fine. So <laughs> it's, it's like, it's a very um, kind of, I, I don't want to say low standard, but like, I don't 
overwhelm myself with intense expectations when I'm in a place of fear. When I am fearful, I go back to the basics. So that's how I managed fear on Thursday. I feel like that's the best anxiety tool ever. And it's so undervalued. If you're breathing, you're okay. And that's the truth. Like yes. everything else can be figured out and you know, nothing, nothing is as damaging as loss of breath. So as long as we keep breathing, you know, things will unfold and we'll all be okay. I mean, yeah, maybe a little bit simplistic. That's but. it. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. <laughs> Final question. Where is your happy place? Okay. I'm a Pisces, so I'm really indecisive, which means I have multiple happy places. Um, <laughs> so one of my happy places is in the ocean, in any body of water, I am just at peace. Another happy place for me is actually in my sexual realm when I can express myself sexually through my body and experience pleasure. Uh, that is a happy place I really value. Another happy place I have is when I am eating food. I just love food. And I think that pleasure and it's such a it can be such a simple pleasure but that is absolutely a happy place for me and having you know a being multicultural in my upbringing having Serbian family food was a place where you connected so for me it kind of goes deeper than just my sensory experience and in my last final happy place is when I'm with my dog out in nature we're on a bushwalk we're present we're He's a very good reminder to be present. So I absolutely value him as a tool um, to create a happy place for me. I love that. Those four happy places were gorgeous. And and number two was very on brand. So <laughs> great way to wrap up. <laughs> yeah. I um I just want to pull out two things that you said just to close on, which is one, question everything. Wow, what a great reminder. So thank you for that. And two, another excellent reminder of just take a fucking breath. That's it. That's all you got to do. Just take one breath at a time. Baby steps. Couldn't think of a more perfect place to close. So Alex, a huge, huge thank you, (laughs) not just for your time, but just sharing all of your incredible perspectives and being so generous and and honest with that um very grateful and can't wait for everyone else to hear all of the valuable nuggets you shared with me (laughs) 